Hey everybody, welcome to the Data Deployed podcast. I'm here with my co-host Donnie, and today we are talking about Mint in Python. Um, so in case that poetry is sort of where package management is going, I understand that's a controversial statement. I'm hoping we can talk about other opinions throughout the show, um, but about poetry. And I think I want to start by sort of addressing the question of like why you should care about management in general and sort of sort of what are the reasons poetry making sense in some cases um and the 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 really scary thing in python development is uh when of packages change unbeknownst to you and i think this doesn't even have to be a direct dependency of your project it can be a dependency of a dependency all the way up the chain and uh, it can actually break your build or if you're a data scientist your algorithm result in a surprising way that you did not uh, um, or intend and obviously there are other solutions in Python. Virtual env is a very common recommendation. Um, Anaconda, I think the most commonly used for, for data science teams. Uh, I really like poetry. I think poetry takes some QNPM, the package manager for Node.js. Uh, it's a lock file by default, which pins every single uh, that, that your project depends on. It works on packages and for more like Python app. Uh, it ties a little bit of other configuration in poetry setup and for your application, your package, they can actually still install with pips. We need a, a special tool to take advantage of setup with, with poetry. So that's my high level. I'm, I'm curious to hear from Jillian and Donnie on, on this subject. <laughs> yeah, that was well, good, Bill. <laughs> well, I know that's good. Those were long words though. Like the one true package <laughs> yeah. manager, we could, we could for years. I am kind of wondering uh, in terms of, and I think this is kind of a yes or no question, and then I'll move on from this point. Uh, you know, in terms of comparing it to other package managers most frequently is Conda. And I started using Conda because it can pre-compile, you know, other sides of Python. So, you know, the Conda package manager can presumably create a package for anything, right? It's not just Python, there's Perl, there's, I think there's like Node.js and NPM and all that kind of thing. And one of the things that it does is it creates these pre-compiled binaries don't rely upon system packages, which is very cool like me because I worked on HPC for a very long time. And uh, the whole deal with HPC is that you don't install any root software. And so we always had to come source. That was my full-time job for a while, gig when I was pregnant with my youngest because I would just sit there with my feet up and the builds go and it was great. Uh, does poetry do anything like that? This one is just for Python. That's a great question. My understanding Python, and I think that is, I totally agree about Anacolia's strength. That, um, like when I was Python, just getting my environment set up was a huge, and Anaconda just like solved that problem for me. Uh, the, I guess, I guess the argument for poetry over his approach to that is you can solve that non Python dependencies with Docker. And if you're using Docker, you don't necessarily want the weight of, the, um, installed in, in your, um, but I, I definitely, I understand it's popular and I, I, it's it's actually not that I think poetry use case, but specifically when I'm building product uh, machine learning systems in Python, I reach as opposed to Anaconda for for that reason. I like that how yeah it seems like um, uh, in a, in a in a limited sense Conda like the prevalence of Docker and containerization Conda is really nice. Um, uh, not needing to miss on the system that you're deploying on. Um, and, and yeah, 
I, I like reason where like I can build the image, you know, where I am and then deploy the image, run it similar to like, like a, a conda binary. So I think great thing. Um, yeah. And the other thing that Conda, I'll use mini Conda for, for environment. As Jillian mentioned, like on a remote system, I can basically folder like, 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 you know, I'm using point eight, it's going in this folder in my home directory. Everything is going in, in the, it doesn't have to be like user level in, you know, back. Um, but yeah, I definitely like the way that, uh, I, I like the idea of decoupling, um, building and, and deploying the build things and, uh, and package management essentially. And, and so I, I and so I use Docker for like the, the build thing. Um, in terms of package management, I really like the idea of, of poetry of this like kind of thing. Um, and, and that's something um, I, I found for my purposes, I've used this different tool, it's called pip tools. Um, but it does, it does a very thing where, where my workflow is, um, you know, your, your traditional requirements.txt file with Python and all um, this, this, this main requirement, I'll call, I'll call it dot in, um, and, and that will have requirements. And then I'll use this, these pip tools, pip compile to actual um, pins dependencies, essentially the equivalent of these log file where you have even, even the, the patch version, full send there and everything and, 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 um, and includes hashes um, so that you make sure you download so some equivalent of a log file. And I really like that, that flow. Um, so yeah, I happen to be using, using pip tools because again, you all, but in poetry seems, seems similar. But I think those are the two big, um, for me are, um, uh, able to like not have to build the thing on the remotes. And, and I tend to use Docker for that. Uh, but also, yeah, being sure that you're deploying like the exact versions that you tested on. So, so essentially like that, the block file is what I pip install inside the Docker container. And yeah, I, I can echo, echo you on like things breaking. Actually, this happened to me yesterday where, um, uh, I was building a Docker container. My, my, my app and it failed um, because I GCC, which did which it had never needed, um, but there was an upgrade to um, Black, the the code formatter that I use for development, which ended up having a new dependency on this Python regex package, which is an improvement on the on the, the standard library one, and it, it, it has this, has C code, so it compiles. So I needed to add you know, an app to get build essential to my Docker file in order for that to work. I think you have to put improvement, <laughs> improvement in quotes if it breaks your build. <laughs> right, 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 exactly. But, but, but I, what's, what's great is that I, I have confidence about that now working now because it, it sort of broke at the time, but, but then I, I added the thing that, that did it and every time it, it builds, um, it's going to build against that lock file, you know, that, that, it, and, and I think that that's really great I, I, until I, I decide to like, you know, upgrade my dependencies and see if anything changed and, and what breaks again. But I, I can I can choose when things break. Things can break yep. in development, yep. but but not on redeploy. Um, so I don't know. It's very important. Yeah. One one other uh, you, you're talking about pip tools and I I think that's another piece of it that I, I didn't really talk about, but it definitely is the case that unfortunately there's about ten different ways to do the same thing in Python. And I, like <laughs> yeah. I guess a little bit i'm hopeful that the community will standardize it around an approach and i think um i think the reason why it probably won't be anaconda is because web developers and other python developers who are not doing data science don't really want to use anaconda they, they maybe would use poetry and so if we could all agree on poetry 
I think the world would be a better place. Oh, uh, but it's so hard to get like a room of software engineers to agree on absolutely <laughs> true, anything, true. anything at all. I do. I mean, I have to say, I like the idea behind some of this stuff. I'm wondering, I'm kind of thinking about like sort of when I had these hopes and dreams in the past and they, you know, they came to bite me, which is specifically, um, you know, so when you have these very hard pin dependencies, at some point, you know, somebody like revokes a version or deletes a version on PyPy or, you know, like just like whatever kinds of things happen. And then your build completely breaks because it is too um, because it's pinned so much. So it's like, well, I can I can see how that's a good and a wonderful thing. And then I can also see how that's going to be me being up until two in the morning trying to figure out what happened because I have a deadline for tomorrow. So, you know, do you guys um, like how does poetry kind of deal with sort of that idea of like, we want to pin things as much as we can to reproduce this environment, but we also know that this is a computer and that things are going to change. So how like flexible is it in the pinning? Is it really easy to just say, you know, upgrade this one package? Like, is that um, maybe something that's built in? Is there a way to roll back anything? I'm not so familiar with poetry. So I'm, I'm here asking me, you know, explain like I'm five questions. Yeah. I think that's a good question. I like, um, the, I guess I guess the first the first question was sort of like how strict is it about locking? My understanding is very strict, and I, but like from personal experience, I've had the problem where I didn't pin every single dependency and it breaks because something some transitive dependency changes. I've never had the thing where an actual pin dependency just disappears from the internet. Um, I I did I, I vaguely remember this happening in npm as like some random package disappeared from from the repository and just broke half the internet. Um, so I think that would be a, a scary thing. But my, my assumption is basically there, there are other systems in place to make sure that happens as little as possible. Like PyPy, I, I don't think there's an easy way to just delete your version off of PyPy once, once you've published it. I could be wrong about that. Um, but it is fairly easy to update dependencies in Poetry if, if that were to ever happen to you. So you, the there's a pretty flexible, um, pretty flexible syntax for specifying the versions that you can tolerate in the actual dependency configuration. And then you can run poetry update. I think it's called poetry update um, to reinstall what the configuration file says and relock it to, to this new set of pen dependencies. So I think, I think that's a, a problem that's basically solved in poetry, but I'm not 100% sure about that. Okay, that's good to know. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, like, I can, I can definitely see it, but it just, it makes me so uncomfortable with all the package managers that if they do need to compile something, that the compiling is happening at the install step, that just, uh, I don't know, it just, it makes me kind of queasy. Um, but I think that's, like, more an emotional problem with me, maybe, than a technical problem, as some of these problems tend to be. What do you guys think about that? Because I know Donnie, you were saying a little bit ago that you had, uh, you know, that all of a sudden you need to pull, you needed to pull GCC in there, which at least you know that's not too bad. But I mean, imagine if it had been kind of the, you know, some of the stuff that you see in the scientific uh, Python community, like Boost, or um, of course now I can't think of any, or like you know some strange version of Zlib. That's something that you see a lot in bioinformatics, or just you know like all these kind of different packages that you maybe need to compile against. I think that that's a lot of why I like Conda, but I can also see like, if you don't care about scientific Python, which, um, you know, or you're not doing anything scientific or if you're doing web development, something like this could be 
like, you know, very nice. Yeah, no, that's true. I, I think it, it is important to be able to have this, this, uh, this platform where um, you're, you're most likely to be able to compile things. And, and so, so, so Conda gives that, gives that to you, you know, right away. And so in my work, I'll, I'll, I'll use, use Docker and like Docker is just like a, a, a mechanism. Like specifically, I'll use this, um, I'll usually base my images off of this uh, Python slim buster thing uh, right now, which is sort of like like a, the, the latest stable Debian and a Python uh, official Docker Python package. Um, and so I, I guess I'm sort of depending on things being able to be built on Debian <laughs> right now for, for anything um, rather than my specific system. And uh, I admit, I, I don't, I'm not too careful with this because I haven't been, been bitten yet by it, but I usually don't um, take too care of being conservative with my, with my pip cache or my compile cache. But I, I imagine that that'd be the sort of thing where, you know, if I were to be bitten by that, you know, if, if, if I'm, you know, working on something and I need to get something out and, and, and I, I, I decide I want to upgrade something and it doesn't work, I, I should be able to roll back to the, to the previous pinned version of it because it, it should have been built you know, locally on my machine. I don't even need to go to the internet to get it again. I really need to get it out right there. Um, yeah, I, I haven't found that I needed to, to pay careful attention to that. But that's that's where I would like look towards is, is like my tip cache and my build cache and like making sure that I, I, I keep maybe more than I think I need so that I can be sure to revert and not have to recompile or go out to the internet, you know, again, because yeah, I, I can imagine that being um, pretty concerning. Um. <laughs> Someday we'll have version control for uh, package management systems, you know, when we're talking about having like caches and caches and caches and things, you know, like it seems like at some point you would be able to to create like different rollbacks on those. Maybe that's where they're going with this. I don't know. That would be cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, imagine imagine doing like like an environment revert, like you can do a git revert, like 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 yeah, check out exactly. check out like a, a like a previous version of your environment. Um, I mean, I, I'm sure this this probably exists, but I, I haven't certainly encountered it in practice. Um, and it hasn't been streamlined, but that, that seems pretty pretty neat. I, I I like your point about compiling dependencies. I think that's a good counter argument to my statement that. It, you can use poetry for everything. And I like, to be fair, I use Anaconda on my own machine, even though I, I do think poetry is nice for projects that I'm, I'm working in. Um, yeah, I, I, I think the other, the other like minor complaint I have about Anaconda is the licensing changed. And, um, I never quite know, like, am I allowed to actually install this on my machine? Am I not allowed to, um, Whereas a project that's totally open source is, is, I just never have that concern. I didn't know that about the licensing. That's interesting. What happened? I, I think basically you're supposed to pay for enterprise licenses and I, I don't know the details of it. So that's like, obviously I, um, basically it's just this, this general feeling of unease rather than it's, it's radically changing my life. But, um, yeah. Okay. I, I, I should say that that I, I typically I'll, I'll use Conda for development, but I won't I won't use Conda inside my deployed Docker containers. I'll just because because I have a Python environment, so I can just install stuff in there. I don't need to manage different things. Um, that's interesting, though. I, I was reading your article on on, on poetry, Ben, and I, I do like a couple of things that seem seem nice. 
One is I didn't know that you could you could decouple it from environments. It, it, it tries to be helpful and create its own virtual environment, but you can say like, forget the environment, just like give me some lock file that I can pip install wherever wherever I am. Um, the other thing I like about it is that I guess it's sort of like the NPM. There's sort of a distinction between um, uh, main production dependencies and dev dependencies. Whereas I think like like my my style right now is is more manual, where I have like a a, a separate requirements.txt for my main dependencies and for my dev dependencies. And I'll, I'll, I'll use the traditional like, um, you know, setup.py install pattern where I'll have like an extras require for those dev dependencies. Um, whereas that's sort of all unified, it seems uh, for, for poetry for the command line. And it, it's, it's all also um, organized together in the, the new um, PyProject Toml standard. Um, which is which, which which seems also very nice as as a way of like um, you know consolidating the concerns of, of the traditional requirements.txt and setup.py. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's it's going in a very good direction towards consolidating. Uh, so I, yeah. Yeah, I like um I actually really like the npm package manager, and I don't. Like, I don't do a ton of web stuff, but I am known to, you know, throw up the occasional interface and whatnot. But, like, I I really like their package manager, and I think they did a lot of things right. And one of the things that initially I really liked about it and actually kind of got me to learn some JavaScript uh, was that they had these very, like, project-specific installations. That was the first time I ever saw that in a package manager, I think, anyways. I mean, this was a while ago, so who knows. But I remember doing, like, npm install, and it installed to my project directory, and, like, all of those dependencies were pinned to a particular project, rather than just throwing them in, like, you know, user local bin, who knows, and then, you know, and then your dependencies clobber each other and things like that. So I do sort of, I like that direction, and I like, um, yeah, especially having the dev and the production dependencies, I think, yeah, I think all that is great. And I think the way I, I actually don't use this feature very often, but I think the way Poetry does that is it it creates a its own folder of virtual environments on your machine, and and then creates a new project specific virtual environment each by default each time you install dependencies for a, a project. So I, I, like it, it's very similar in terms of functionality to npm's approach of node modules underneath the the package structure. Yeah, I think I think that's the way that it does too. I remember. I mean, I did like try it out briefly, um, and then actually I found out about it a few weeks ago because I didn't know what it was, and I saw it in a build file that I was in like a Docker build file, and I was like, "Poetry, like, what is this? You know, like, what what is this doing?" And then I had to go. I was like, "Oh, look, it's another Python package manager." Um, so yeah, I do think it is doing the. It creates like a home. I don't know what it is. Home .local .poetry or something like that. You know, like similar to what Conda does, where I think your Conda environments end up in, you know, in like con Conda ends or something like that. So it is interesting. I really want rollback on software environments. Now that this has come into my head, I'm gonna be like, that's that's gonna be my new, you know, my new thing that I'm stuck on is why can't I roll back? Should be able to do this. Yeah, I mean, you, you can get it at the if, at the very coarse grained level if you, if you're willing to work at that level with like with Docker containers, right? Like you know, like Kubernetes. Okay, let, let's let's revert revert to the, the last image, which is like you know pretty good. But it, I mean, yeah, it'd be it'd be interesting to be able to have it at the granularity of like your Python environment level. <laughs> um, yeah, I yeah. do a lot of potentially yeah. stupid things between Docker builds. So I mean, it's better than nothing, right? <laughs> 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 That's yeah. Cool. 
there, there's a very big gap here that kind of looks like Niagara Falls in terms of, uh, you know, between Docker builds when I'm building software. Oh, but I should be mentioning that online. That could, <laughs> that could be a bad thing. I have, I have a question that, that we don't have to go too far on this, but um, just on the, you know, we're talking about data science here, and I'm, I'm kind of curious, you know, package management isn't, and dependency pinning, like, isn't a solved problem, even the Python ecosystem, right? Um, and and that, that's just for software packages. But I'm wondering, you know, what kinds of things people have, have used or explored or ideas um, about uh, not not just installing software into your environment, but but data. Um, so so if you have certain data sets that you're using as part of your analysis, you know you know they might or might not be versioned, right? And so like you might have an environment where you're doing some analysis, and you're bringing in five different data sets, and they might have different pinned versions, and they might they could have upstream dependencies on the upstream data sets. I can imagine that that kind of thing being the case for some workflows or in the future. Yeah. Like, do, do people have kind of thoughts on that sort of thing? Uh, I, I, guess, I guess you would call I it do. I do too, yeah. <laughs> OK, great. I think great. we all have some pretty strong thoughts on that. Yeah, great. it was actually uh, I'm an analyst on another show called Adventures and DevOps, and we were talking about that. And I think I'm probably one of the only like really data-focused people, but my whole thing was you know, the, the line between software and data just gets blurrier and blurrier, I think, because there are so many softwares that at the very least you need a database backend, right? So then, you know, so how are you taking care of that? Um, you can do things like you can version your database schema with, you know, tools like SQL Alchemy or Alembic or the other ones, but it doesn't actually version the data. So if you do something like say you make an upgrade where you're dropping a column in your database, there's no way to get that back like with any of the current uh, currently being used tools, except for if you're doing, you know, database dumps. And it's, I mean, to me, the whole, I suppose there's a really big question of where does the line between the software end and the data begin? Because in my world, at least, there's a whole lot of gray area between those two. And yeah, I'm just wondering what you guys think about that, since I know you're sort of in, the, in a similar headspace. You know, we're all on data science deployed here. Yeah, I think that's a good point about databases. And I, I'll say I haven't thought a ton about the implications of versioning data for databases, but um, I have thought quite a bit about versioning data for machine learning model development. And I think, um, I, I think, I, I, basically, I think you can't have a reproducible model without versioning your data. And I think in the early stages of a project, that's probably okay. Like just spin up your Jupyter notebook, write scratch code. You're, you're just like in very broad strokes trying to answer basic questions about your model. But I think, for a mature project, you cannot do iterative improvement on that model if it's not reproducible, and therefore you need to version your data sets. Um, I really like data version control as a solution to this DVC. Um, I think I've seen other solutions out there. I, I don't think it's uh, if you don't use DVC, you're not doing it right. But I, I do think it's very important. And I think it's not probably still getting enough attention, in my opinion, in, in the in the field, especially for sort of deployed production type machine learning uh, systems. So, so I, I was looking a little into, into DVC a little more, and I think that my, so my mental model currently is that um, you you have, you identify data sets using file names and, and the versions are identified using hashes. 
and, and that's maybe tied to some some source upstream. Yeah. Um, file names or folders. File file names or folders. Yep. Um, and so, like, I'm wondering, like, what the equivalent might be of, um, like, PyPy, where like there's maybe some sort of global namespace or repository where like I want to do the equivalent of pip install this data set with this with this global name, you know, at, at least relative to PyPy.org um, at this version number. Yeah. And then, and that that corresponds to a to a to a hash, um, and, and stuff. But you can sort of maybe have like a dependencies file and pull all those things in, yeah. Rather than having to like, uh, kind of, man, there's some sense of like of like like a a, a pub publish ecosystem. Yeah, like, like I want to in things. Pip install ImageNet or like whatever. Just like grab some public data version, whatever. Yep. Right. Exactly. Right. I, I love that idea. I like, and that. Um, I don't think that's a solved problem, really. But DBC does approach that. They've the iterative the company has a a data set registry, and and DBC has a command for importing data sets. So basically, you can store the raw data set. They they store it for you. You can import that data set, pull it down at, at a specific version for your project, and and run from there. Um, I, I've I really like that. Doing this. I just yeah. have like a second to say that. Like, I used to it's have a cool. whole bunch of like stupid boilerplate yeah. in my make files about syncing up and down from S3, and now I can just make S. Uh, I can just make DVC do it, and it's great. Yep, exactly. I, I, I've got a project doing this as a toy pipeline. It's just MNIST, but basically, it's like, how do you bring in the data set? How do you manage the the compute DAG? The, these kinds of things. Um, so that, that could all be a future or show maybe, but yeah, I, I think I think this idea is very powerful, and I, I hope that's where the community goes. I, I think a similar thing with models do. So models do is really po popular in deep learning. You get this pre-trained model to start your image classifier or whatever. Uh, as far as I know, none of them are basically reproducible. So um, yeah, I, I would love to have like here are data sets. They're all publicly available. You can import any of them. And here are our models. And here's exactly how they were trained. And you can import any of them or modify how it was trained if you want to. Um, it's it's maybe a little bit academic. I don't know if 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 it's a hard requirement for practical use cases, but it's um, it bugs me a little bit that we're just like take the magic model weights out of the oven and and apply them in your project, and you don't know like where they came from or. Um, yeah. Yeah, so off my soapbox, but that definitely I have thoughts about the sort of like deep learning space and uh, how, how we do data sets and, and model versioning today. No, oh, I think, I mean, that's all so important. I've, you know, I've personally been on projects where uh, data was lost at some point, and a lot of times it can't, like it, you can't get it back. That's it. Like the, the project's over because there was some really important piece of data missing. And you know maybe somebody did like a join one day and overwrote some data. Um, you know I don't, I don't think any of this stuff is ever really malicious, but you know things happen. Whereas if you sort of have this kind of concept of like okay, so what goes into kind of like a data engineering platform, which is something that I've been thinking about, like what is kind of the minimum viable data engineering platform? And so much of this to me is again this idea of where does the software start? and the data begin or vice versa because there is so much gray area and i think um i mean it's not exactly the same thing but that's why i always keep such a close eye on all these different scientific uh data source models like x-ray and hdf5 and all these things because my idea is that somebody eventually somebody very clever is going to come along 
and they're going to build out like an open API kind of spec, like what exists with the, you know, like the web open API spec um, that can then be compiled to like a bunch of, you know, different sets. And what I'm hoping is that something kind of comes out of that sort of ecosystem where you have kind of like an API that can sort of access these scientific file types. And then through that, you get some kind of versioning. And then you also get, you know, like your fetch and your pull and um, hashes and all that kind of thing. I don't know that it's happening. I know like TensorFlow kind of has something like that with their with their model zoo, but it's still very like platform and framework uh, specific. I don't know if you can just take the models and like import them other places maybe with uh, maybe with Keras, but that's why I like this idea of like, no, we need to just sort of standardize on a few different file types within the community uh, throw an API, you know, throw some kind of layer on top of those and then and then just be sharing between that. And I do think things are moving in that direction. But I, I you know. Yeah, I, I, shout out to the Onyx project. I think uh, in past projects I've used um, Onyx ways to, to sort of trans, transfer machine learning models between systems. So it's like you train a model in PyTorch, export the Onyx binary file, and then import it in DeepStream SDK or whatever. Um, yeah. That's cool. I didn't know about that. It's very cool. O N N X. I will go take a look at that. Yeah, just yesterday I was I was trying to get up a a, a CI workflow, continuous integration workflow for, for testing of, of a code code base that I'm working on in a project. And um, the code was, was was no problem, but it's like I can't run the test because oh I need to have up set up all these environment variables and I need to get like the test data in and because like all that data is like is part of the project. It's it's part of knowing whether things are working or not. It's not it's hard to just test the code. Um, I mean in the unit test sense it's sure but like it, it's it's part of it. So you kind of want want that all to be managed together um, in a lot of these kinds of projects. So I, I definitely definitely see that a lot. I also think it's really interesting to start thinking about, uh, you know, like this idea of sort of state, not just did it pass or fail, but something, you know, so like I use Terraform quite a bit when I'm, you know, um, committing infrastructure. And basically it's this infrastructure as code tool where essentially you have these different configuration files, but then in the back end, it actually keeps track of the state. So say if I'm deploying an EC2 instance on AWS, I might call it like EC2 one or something. And then, you know, and then I change and then I commit that and deploy it. And then I want to change the name to EC2 or something or like, you know, EC211, EC22, stuff like that. It actually keeps track of all of these changes all the time with these sort of like physical entities. And kind of going through that has really sort of made me think a lot about specifically about these sort of softwares that we have. It's kind of like software that also integrates with a bunch of, you know, configuration variables, like you were saying, Donnie, or maybe, um, you know, like some test data sets or something like that. And how can we start to think about these ideas of state? Uh, you know, like if you're, so say you're taking Airflow, I deploy Airflow all the time, right? Airflow has a Flask application that has, I don't even know how many different configuration variables, a Redis queue and a Postgres. So think about how many different permutations there are of just different ways that you could configure that. And that's without even getting into like free text variables, just even some of the yes, no, one, two, three, stuff like that. Uh, and you know, and that's part of the application and that's often part of the data. So how do you, you know, how do you differentiate between 
versioning your your the software itself versus versioning like how it's deployed and the data that it's deployed with because you could get very different results you know based based on your application configuration or based on the data i don't know what do you guys think i i like using um test environments for that. So it's like I've got a whole test setup for Airflow and a production setup for Airflow. And I can, as I make a change, I can push it to the test setup with all those environment variables set. Um, it doesn't It doesn't solve the, like, all the permutations of different configuration settings, but it is like one realistic setting that is important. And if it breaks there, then you know it's going to break in production. Or, um, But I... I I don't think I have a full solution other than like that's one sanity check that I've seen work pretty well in the past. Well, nobody has a full solution. That's what's interesting about it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I've, I've 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 liked for a little while, at least on the 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 side of it, you know, we discussed software and and software packages. So I've, I've been doing pip tools and requirements that text and pinning for that, and we've talked about. Um, data set versioning. I, I do something different different than DVC for that, but it sort of falls in that space of having that kind of involved in your in your repository um, for your different partitioning of environments. I think recently for me, for, for environment variables, I've been um, following the kind of approach of having like a, a, a .env file or, or equivalent um, for my different environments so that so you kind of have like a set of things that you can sort of swap them in. And when I'm developing, I'll, I'll pass one of those .env files to, you know, Docker Compose services, so like things will kind of load up with kind of you know okay, that code and that that environment and you know those those sorts of connections. But um, so it, it's hard to re reproduce the state, but at least I, I've kind of got these different things in in the repository. Or I mean, in, in some cases they they can't be; they need to be get ignored because they contain sensitive things. And so I still haven't figured out that sort of thing. Um, but that's. That's how I've been juggling that sort of thing, but it, it's it's not uh, it's not super satisfying, <laughs> I would say, because it, it's still sort of different systems. Um, you know, I've, I've got I've got the system for for software pinning and for data pinning and for environment variable management, and so, but like it, it's it's you know I, I, it's all part of the same thing. Um, they they just have different labels. You know, some of the things are software, some of the things are data, some of the things are environment, but they're all the things <laughs> that, that need to come exactly. together. Exactly, you can't yeah. separate yeah. them out. <laughs> do you guys mock out your uh, like your environments for testing, or do you uh, do you like duplicate? So if you're, I don't know, you know, like I'm deploying a Kubernetes, do you like mock out your Kubernetes APIs? I don't know why anybody would do that. That was a silly example, but like or like you see it a lot in web programming. They you know they'll try to like mock out the different APIs and stuff like that. Or do you uh, do you just be like no, Kubernetes prod, Kubernetes stage, Kubernetes dev. I don't mock it out as much as I probably should. Um, yeah, I, I like, I use .env as well. So I like that for at least communicating, like I'll have like a .env .example and it's like, okay, these are the environments variables yeah, you're gonna too. have to set. Yeah. I'm, like, I'm not gonna commit .env, but these are the things you're gonna have to think about. Um, yeah, I like mocking, but it's it's slow and it's, for a lot of the machine learning stuff I write, uh, I don't see a ton of benefit. Um, like, I, like I end up just testing assumptions about the data set or, or these other other things that, uh, yeah, I don't know. 
I think testing I think testing data science code is hard in general. It definitely is. I'm on the other side with mocking. I've gotten the point of just like refused to do it because then like mocking the system turns into like a bigger development project than just <laughs> you know like replicating the system. And I'm like, listen, I don't care if you want to save 70 bucks by not having another EKS cluster up. We need one more. One more for stage. So I've, I've gotten kind of dogmatic over that in like the last year. Like, no, I'm just, um, I'm just like, I'll scale it down, right? It doesn't have to be, you know, hundreds of nodes or whatever, but it's gotta, it's gotta be like the same thing. I'm not gonna um, use like Minikube or any of these other kind of systems. I think now you can run like Kubernetes with Docker or something. Like, no, 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 it's gonna be a proper Kubernetes cluster. If I'm using EKS, it's gonna be EKS, all that kind of stuff. I, 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 I tend to, agree with that yeah and the things that i do especially if you get into more complex setups it's it's unclear that you're making the right assumptions in, in your in your mocking decisions that actually you know reflect how things are going to perform in the real setup so it might be better to um to do the real thing but maybe subset it so maybe your yeah your your development or staging will be on a subset of the data or yeah it requires fewer nodes um, but it's still fundamentally the, the same the same setup um, so you're able to exercise uh, yeah assumptions that you're not able to really make you don't really know about um, yeah 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 the other thing that i like about that system and uh, i know I keep going on about kubernetes i'm not even necessarily happy that kubernetes won like the cluster war but it's you know it's it's where we're at and it's what I'm dealing with. So Kubernetes it is, but it has a very nice integration with Terraform where you can save all of your like Kubernetes state. It gets saved within Terraform. So like if you want to save environmental variables, secrets, uh, encryption key, you know, just like whatever it is that you're doing, it becomes a part of that state. And presumably you can roll back and forth between, you know, between your different commits. Whether or not that actually works is always a little, you know, is always a little bit tricky. If you're really good and you keep like, really everything in the terraform state and you don't have like uh you know anything outside of that which of course is very difficult to do because you always find like some kind of little edge case you know it does it does seem like it is a very nice way of doing things because you are like you are saving that sort of like metadata information but even that that's for configuration that's not even for data like that's um yeah i mean you could still have you could still be connecting to a database and the database could be full of stuff or it could have nothing and you know it doesn't know Are you guys ever on Kubernetes at all? Do you do any of your, uh, I know like machine learning, it seems like they've kind of hit on Kubernetes as like the Kubeflow and uh, like I know uh, Prefect is using yeah. Kubernetes quite a bit for their, for their like setup and orchestration and all that kind of thing. Yeah, we used Polyax on uh, my last job, which is a machine learning development platform that sits on top of Kubernetes. Um, and then we had our batch schedulers that we used Argo, which sits on top of Kubernetes. Um, yeah, I, I don't love it. I think for most of the stuff that I care about, the, the sort of standard AWS tools are good enough. Like I like AWS batch pretty well. Um, yeah, I think SageMaker does a pretty good job with, with sort of machine learning, um, development process. But I like I understand why it's important, and I think for some for some cases it makes a lot of sense. 
Uh, yeah, same here. Uh, one of my clients is, uh, yeah, we're running a Kubernetes cluster, and it, it's managed through through Rancher, uh, which is a yeah a nice has a nice UI and yeah nice way of managing Kubernetes clusters. Um, and so we're doing stuff on that. But yeah, I mean, personally, I I I like the simplicity of Docker Compose and and, and, and Docker Swarm and that sort of thing. And I I kind of uh, am able to get away with that when I have have not not too many large nodes. Um, but I definitely appreciate um, uh, the utility of Kubernetes, especially for like a large base where, you're, where you know, my clients their organization supporting lots of different apps. And so it's nice to have, yeah, the different different namespaces and the ingress and, you know, certificate management. And it's, it's um, you know, the idea of the workloads and the pods. And I think it, it makes sense when you're when you're dealing with that with that scale, especially if you're um, if you're a, 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 a IT support organization for, for a lot of people giving giving access to, to compute um, in, in that case. So, yeah. Cool. I was just wondering what you guys were, uh, were thinking about it. So I think we started off the show with poetry. Does anybody have <laughs> kind of anything to add to that? We got, we got real off track there. <laughs> That's okay, though. I, 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 I think based on this, I, I might, I might try poetry for my next project. Um, I, I definitely look forward to the day when, um, when at least you know in Python things are a bit more straightforward. You know, I, I was onboarding someone to my project um, two days ago, and they're like, "So where's the requirements.txt?" And <laughs> I say, "Like, okay, no, I'm, I'm, I've, you know, I have a requirements folder that has like a main dot in and a main and a dev dot in that compiles to." The pip compile, and this is this is how I, this is how we do it here, um, but but I imagine that that's the sort of same thing for you know a lot of people seeing probably a Pi project Tomal. They're like, hmm, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that was but, but I like it. Go with seeing poetry in a in a Docker build. I was like, what what is this? Where is the requirements .txt? That's funny because that was that was my exact reaction to to that scenario. I was like, oh no, what's happening? Does anybody know? Is it getting? Um, kind of integrated with pip like you know when you do you know so like pip or pypy is like sort of the main the main thing can you just install yeah you can know, like um can you set up a python package with a poetry yep like the, the pi project instead uh, of requirements yep yeah. the the pi project um you can pip install from that um poetry adds some poetry specific stuff in there so I think maybe it, not every single configuration that you might use in poetry would work in pip directly, but, but I think the idea is it should, it should pretty much be compatible. Um, yeah, I think, I think basically that's a problem in Python right now is there's not widespread standardization about how you actually install packages. Um, and I don't know if poetry is going to win. I hope something wins. And I think, I think poetry is at least worth taking a look at it. It's, I'll plan to keep using it for production projects for the near future, at least. Cool. Well, that's a, that's a good endorsement. Yeah, and, and there's there's definitely been, been progress on the front. Like I know I know a couple of people who've who've worked with the Python Software Foundation to to improve PIP's dependency resolver. Recently, there was kind of like a major release. So there's a lot of just great work happening around this, the whole ecosystem. Um, so. I'm bullish on it. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think once kind of enough of these sort of, you know, things get out there, um, you know, because, I mean, that's sort of the beautiful thing about open source is that everybody's free to contribute their ideas. And then I think eventually they sort of converge to like something like a singularity, but it's it's built off of, you know, the ideas and the work of all of these other things. It's not like it just comes out of a vacuum. So I think it's always really important that everybody, you know, release all their things, even though sometimes I'm like, oh, no, why is there another one? But, you know, at the end of the day, I think that it's great that everybody is out there and uh, trying to solve these problems. And, you know, it's only making it's only making things better as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Briefly on that, I've also taken to in some of my projects uh, using using a make file for things to, to interface to the various things. So like rather than having to know to type poetry, whatever, or pip, whatever. I just like make. <laughs> I like make. <laughs> it's I'm never going away. Yeah. I'm making like a cookie cutter that, um, so one of the things that I do is I have like a couple different Docker Compose, uh, you know, like stacks that I use pretty regularly. And I've been sort of like just manually making the make files as I go along. And now I think I'm going to make like a cookie cutter that generates the Docker compose and then like looks at the Docker compose file for the services and then generates like make file, make commands for each one of those. So like, you know, dev airflow up, dev airflow shell, dev airflow logs, like things like that. So yeah, it's, I'm still going, I'm still on there with the make files, <laughs> but I really do like it. It's great. The, um, the, like the, what is it? The cookie cutter pie package or pie data. They both have pretty nice make files with them. I just need more. All right, so who, who wants to take us away? I guess I can. Yeah. Uh, I think basically that's all we have to say about poetry. Uh, give it a look if you haven't seen it already. Uh, you don't need to reject Anaconda. Uh, both can coexist. And thanks everybody for listening. Thank you. All right, thanks everybody. Bye. Bye.